This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. Broadcasting to you from Santa Rosa, California, by way of the IC Robots Radio Network, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prepare to witness the strength of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Everybody, it is I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, coming at you with episode 9 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. And it has been a long time, folks. I'm really sorry. I have been completely out of the podcast loop. Uh, I think we've gone for over a month without a new episode, and that is all on me. Actually, to be fair, it's it's partially on the fates, uh, the, the chaos of the universe, as it were. Um, I've been pretty busy here, but that has been compounded by the fact that in October, if you've been listening to the Toys R Us report and other uh, Icy Robots podcasts of late, you will know that we had a massive fire here in Santa Rosa, California that destroyed huge parts of the city. And while I was not even just relatively unscathed, I was I was pretty much generally physically unscathed. I mean, I was psychologically scathed as anyone that lived here was, but I wasn't even as close to it as ISR was. I, I kind of lived close to downtown, and so we were pretty much out of the range of any immediate flames. But it was still it was still a, a hairy experience. You didn't. It was hard to know exactly what was going on. In the throes of the moment. But anyway, yeah, my month of October pretty much just got swallowed up into the abyss as most Santa Rosans did. Um, the kids were home for school for three weeks. Uh, friends lost houses. Uh, there was just coming to terms with what was going on in the city. Wild times, as ISR has very well chronicled on his shows. And it was kind of... Um, unfortunate timing for this show because I was all fired up at the start of October. I was going to be super productive. I was even going to try to squeeze in a Halloween special. And yeah, none of that happened. <laughs> it's like, like everything else in my life and in the life of most people in Santa Rosa in the month of October, things just came to a grinding halt. But I am back now and I'm hoping, as I always hope, to get kind of into a regular rhythm here and we'll see. Maybe someday it will happen. But as of right now, we are here, episode 9, ready to go. It's good to be back. Um, since it's been a while, and since it had been a while, even on the last couple episodes, I want to kind of do a real quick event center here and just bounce around the IC Robots Radio Network as always. The IC Robots Radio Network is a listener-supported endeavor, so if you'd like, hop on over to supportthereport.com, where for as little as $1 a month, you can help support what we do here at the network. You can get access to some premium IC Robots content, and you'll just help us keep doing what we do. And for those of you who do, we appreciate it. You can also go to Facebook and follow the official IC Robots Facebook page. I'm actually an administrator over there now, though I haven't really 
gotten too heavily into it yet because I've been waiting to actually have another episode out, so there was like a point for me to actually be communicating on there. But anyway, head on over to Facebook. I think it's just facebook.com slash icrobots. Boom, the page is there. Give us a like. Uh, you can keep up to date on all the shows that are happening and uh, see what other wacky goodness ISR is up to. As always, there's the shows themselves. There's my show. Uh, there's the weekly, pretty much, Toys R Us report put out by IC Robots himself. There's IC Robots' other shows, like the uh, audio handbook to the Marvel Universe, where he goes through the old Marvel uh, Universe handbook comics from back in the day and kind of gives his own take on various characters and their entries in there. He'll do some who's who in the DC Universe from time to time. His great This Boring Life show, uh, the occasional... Um, pretentious podcast he does a, a co-show with the great uh, Zerb um, haven't seen one of those come down the pike in a while but I'm sure it will happen again at some point um, then there's also Geek Fest Rants uh, we've got all those shows going on something for everyone so check it out IC Robots also has a Redbubble store so head over to Redbubble just search for IC Robots you'll find it we, there's stickers, mugs, t-shirts buy some merch that's another great way to support the network and that's about it for now thanks for tuning in and let's get on with the show The fun is back, oh yes siree It's the 2600 from Atari It's the video system with classics galore From space invaders to cars that roar A real hip joystick controls the screen Solaris is hot and midnight magic's mean And one more thing, it's got a special low price Under 50 bucks 50 bucks? Now isn't that nice? The fun is back, oh yes siree It's the 2600 from Atari Yes, indeed. The 2600 from Atari is going to be the centerpiece of what we're talking about today on episode 9 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Actually, more accurately, we're going to be talking about the Sears Video Arcade. Uh, that was the iteration of the 2600 that I ended up with in my possession. But in order to get to this story, we are going to start with some happenings that took place in October in the midst of the big North Bay fires that ISR has been chronicling. And I believe it was, um, gosh, I, I can't remember the date offhand now. That time uh, period is all jumbled for me at this point. But uh, a few weeks prior to the fire taking place, my grandmother, my last remaining grandparent, my mom's mom, uh, died at the age of, um, she was 91. She was a few weeks away from her 92nd birthday. And my grandma had been around for so long that I think I had, uh, probably 10 years ago spent some time thinking about the inevitability or the, the, uh, you know, the fact that she would be passing at some point, but then it just never really happened. So it kind of gotten to a point where I, I just honestly didn't believe she was ever going to die. I mean, she was almost 92. Um, but, you know, we are human beings and we do leave this mortal coil eventually. And so she went on her way and is no longer with us. Um, but how this works into October and the fires is that um, early on um, when the fires happened after that first uh, night and then in the, the couple days following where they were still raging pretty close to the city and no one was really sure what was going on, um, I'd been in communication with my mom because her and my dad 
lived closer to one of the active fires than we do. They don't really live that far from us, but just the way the geography worked with all this and the fire trajectory, just just them being, you know, five, ten minutes away made a world of difference. And uh, I know um, ISR had mentioned that he thought maybe they had been evacuated at some point. They never actually did have to evacuate their house. A lot of people on their street left voluntarily. They were near an area that, that did get forcibly uh, evacuated, but that never was the case for them. They just kind of hung in there through the whole thing. But anyway, so I was talking to my mom. I, I, I kind of was checking in on her about their situation with the fire and everything. Like Icy Robots, they were actually able to see active flames and stuff from where they were at. Um, but amidst all this, my mom mentions, and this is probably on like uh, the, the fire um, happened like late Sunday night. We found out about it early Monday morning. And this was maybe on Tuesday um, and my mom just kind of drops in, in the middle of talking about the fire stuff. Oh, and by the way, grandma's funeral is on Friday. And I, I had I knew there was going to be a memorial service. I did not know it would be coming up so suddenly. Um, I mean, I guess people don't really wait around for months to have a funeral, but I don't have a ton of experience, um, in the world of funerals and memorials. I've actually been to more within the last couple of years than I, than I had in the rest of my life combined. But, um, so when it, anyway, it kind of caught me by surprise. Just the idea of like going out of town to do something just I wasn't even – I couldn't even really compute that at the time just because it's like you know we were still just kind of holed up in our house. It looked like a freaking moonscape outside. Uh, couldn't really breathe. Um, lungs were in bad shape. Uh, you know, the doom and gloom on the television news. Um, you know, I, I still didn't even know if people like ISR were able to go back to their house or if their houses were safe. Anyway, it was like, oh, yeah, so I guess, yeah, we're going down to the San Francisco area for a funeral on Friday in the midst of all this. Okay, I guess that's going to somehow work or happen. But work and happen, it did. We actually did go down there that uh, Friday. And it was a really weird experience. Um, my mom's family is interesting in the fact that they were kind of the dominant family um, in my formative years. They were the family we spent the most time with, their side of the family. Um, they were kind of the more larger-than-life figures. My dad had one uh, sister who he wasn't really in that much contact with. My mom, on the other hand, had has two brothers and a sister. Um, just kind of a bigger family, and um, you know, they're the Chinese side of the family, so that always kind of stood out to me as a kid. Um they were the family that we did Christmases with. Um, but my mom's that, that nuclear family itself was kind of held together by my grandpa who died pretty young. He died when he was about 60. I think I might've talked about this on a previous episode, but he, he wasn't in great shape. He smoked a lot of cigarettes. He did not eat well. Um, he had a first heart attack and then he never really went back to the doctor after that. And they ended up dying from a massive heart attack. I, I think he's about 61. But anyway, he had kind of held that family together. It's kind of like when you you hear about a country, um, like I think Iraq was kind of like this, where they have like a strongman dictator who um, is kind of super oppressive, but everything in the country works, uh, you know, on a functional level. You know, the trains are on time and the, the, the roads are paved and everything like that. But then once that strongman is deposed, everything just kind of goes to hell and everyone scatters to the winds. And that's kind of what happened with my mom's family. My, my grandpa was kind of like a, a Chinese Archie Bunker, you know, sort of the, the prototypical overbearing, uh, uh, sort of yelly, angry guy of his day. I got along with him pretty well most of the time, but I think it's cause you know, I was a grandkid. It's different than, you know, his, his wife or his kid, his own kids or whatever. But, um, 
Once he passed, um, we would still get together for Christmas, um, particularly with my grandma and with uh, my mom's sister. But my mom and her brothers, that I remember there was, there was never like a decided, like huge falling out, but they just kind of stopped talking to each other. And um, I, prior to my grandma's funeral, hadn't seen either of my uncles in Gosh, like, um, well, I had seen one of my uncles had resurfaced a couple Christmases ago, but just generally speaking, up until the, this year and the last couple of years, I hadn't really seen my uncles much, you know, for like 30 years, maybe once here or there. Um, I'd see my aunt and my grandma on Christmases, but again, the family, my mom's family just kind of like they're weird like that. They just, there's no like stated tension or stated beef, but no one really like, um, just hangs out casually. <laughs> like, um, you know, I, I was relatively close to my mom's parents, my grandma and grandpa when I was little, because we lived in San Francisco, same city as them. And they would watch me sometimes. And I was one of the first grandkids. And I, I had a pretty close relationship with them my first couple of years up to about age five. And then like after my grandpa died, it's not that, I mean, you know, I, my grandma was great, you know, I, uh, but I, there just wasn't that a close connection there, you know? Um, we just kind of like respected each other from a distance. It felt like maybe it's the best way to put it. So, um, you know, obviously like it, it was a bummer when she, she died. I mean, part of it too, is she was so old that it's just kind of like, what do you want this to torture this person by keeping them around forever? I mean, people gotta have to go on their way at some point. So it was kind of, you know, not like, yay, you know, she died, but you know, it's kind of like, Oh, uh, you know, nature has taken its course and she lived a, a long life. Um, but the combination of the age and just the combination of the relationship, it's not like a, it was a devastating, um, thing for me other than just the sadness you have, the changing of the seasons and someone that you're, you know, expect to just be around isn't anymore. So that wasn't what made the, the funeral strange. What made it strange was the, the um, reunion of my mom's nuclear family all in the same place at the same time. I think they reunited a couple times without me um, in recent years, but this was the first time I'd been around with just everyone from back in the day, both my uncles, my aunt, uh, cousin. I used to hang out with a lot when I was little that I hadn't seen in, in, in a good 30 years at least was there. Um, so it was just kind of strange the combination of the midst of like just the fire and all that turmoil. And then going to this, this funeral, seeing these people I hadn't seen, um, for so long, it was just kind of an overwhelming affair. And so the, the funeral was nice. Funeral was chill. Um, my grandma had like a nice tricked out, uh, casket. (laughs) My grandma was, uh, rather, uh, into her looks. So even though no one was going to be viewing the body or anything, she had like a dress picked out she wanted to wear and she was all made up and she had this like pimped out purple ish kind of casket. Um, very, uh, befitting of her. And, uh, I got to be one of the pallbearers, which was a first for me and kind of a strange experience, uh, you know, side by side with these uncles I hadn't seen forever. Um, yeah, it was, it was a chill service. It was great. You know, she was sent on her way. We all went out to a nice lunch at a deem someplace. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we were, this was all kind of down in Daly city, um, South of San Francisco. Um, so we're sitting there in this insanely busy, outrageously loud, just big cavernous, uh, Chinese restaurant in Daly city. Um, for those of you who haven't been to this kind of restaurant before, I mean, this isn't like a, uh, American Chinese restaurant. This is a full, full on occupied all by Chinese people, barely any English being spoken restaurant. And these tend to be these big kind of banquet hall places where you sit at a large round table with a lazy Susan 
and um, you don't order individual plates. You're ordering stuff that everyone is just kind of sharing from. You're spinning the spinning the plate around, trying to trying to get it in on the food action before it just gets completely gobbled up. And you know, Chinese people in that situation show no quarter and just you know, I, I always I, I get out of practice going to these places and I feel like I have to be polite and kind of like not take something the first time it goes around. But like if you don't, it's gone by the time by the time it's past you. So you just got to kind of dive in there. And uh, just have no shame. But anyway, I'm sitting there eating, enjoying the food, just kind of reflecting, looking around at these people who all look very similar to me but are, are strangers at the same time. Yet also, like, I, I know on a certain level because they, they were all around at such formative times in my young life. And I started having this memory about my grandma, and it was the Christmas of 1988. I believe my grandpa would have already been gone at this point. Uh, excuse the ping, that was Lee Stumbaugh um, replying to <laughs> a picture of the old Encyclopedia Britannica kid that I posted on Facebook because I'd forgotten about the Encyclopedia Britannica kid. Um, if you'll recall, he was kind of a skinny guy with long blonde hair, and he reminds me of what Lee Stumbaugh looked like before Lee inexplicably cut his hair off recently. But anyhow, back to the story at hand. Um, uh, Christmas of 88, there were two um, games for the Nintendo Entertainment System that had been released that holiday season that were in high demand and hard to find, and they were Super Mario Brothers 2 and um, Legend of Zelda 2. Um, And I was pining after both of them, and I think my parents decided they were going to help facilitate me getting one of them. And fortunately, they picked Mario because that – the. Zelda game is sort of um, notoriously bad. It's fu- funny, both of those uh, sequels, um, both of the twos, both in Mario and uh, Zelda, were so radically different from anything else in the uh, franchise. But um, anyway, I I had been bugging them for these games for Christmas, and they're like, you know, these games are all sold out. We're not going to be able to get either, either of them. So I'd kind of resigned myself to that. Um, but then we headed down to San Francisco from here in Santa Rosa, as we did most Christmases, uh, went to my grandma's house and, um, which was always, I always loved going to my, my, that set of grandparents' house for Christmas. It was, uh, it was a very Christmassy affair with like Nat King Cole playing and, uh, garish Christmas decorations everywhere and, uh, Chinese food being cooked, and um, we'd all, we usually would have like live Dungeness crab too that my dad and other relatives would go out and get, and then uh, put to death and <laughs> cook in the kitchen. So anyway, um, we get there, and when we're opening gifts, my grandma straight up gave me Super Mario Brothers two. Um, it, it was mind blowing. I, I, I had completely given up on it, I, and I had blown it up in my mind. Um, you know, I guess I was like what twelve at the time. That just like I, I didn't understand that just because something you're hearing that something's in scarce supply on the news or whatever, people can still usually find stuff. You know, um, but anyway, I was just like, how did you find this? This is amazing. So anyway, I, and that went on to be. Um, for me, my personal favorite game in the Mario Brothers franchise, which is funny because I know that one's kind of weird because it was like a remake of another game from Japan, and it's just not really as Mario as some of the other Mario stuff. And it's almost kind of outside of the canon. Like, the, you know, you don't have Bowser as the enemy. You have that, um, God, I forget the guy's name, that frog fellow. Anyway, um, so it, it's kind of its own one-off game. It's very different format than the others, but I think it's just because the age I was at, and it was like, 
I just sat there and I played that game through. I stayed home sick from school one day and finished the whole thing, start to you know from the beginning to end. Um, that one just because of w- when it hit me in time and everything, that one was always the standout Mario game for me. I love that game. Anyway, so I associate that game with my grandma, and I was remembering that, that I got it from my grandma. But then I was looking around and I looked at my uncle Tony. Um, Uncle Tony um, has lived down in L.A. I, I talked about him on one of the music episodes. It was when I went to go visit him and his daughter Jennifer, who's my cousin that was at um, – that I hadn't seen in 30 years that was at this funeral. Um, when I went down to visit them in LA when I was a kid, it was the first time I saw MTV. But anyway, I was looking at Tony and um, I was remembering that, well, hey, my grandma gave me Super Mario Brothers 2, which was this formative video game experience for me. Um, but Tony was the man that started it all because Tony was actually the fellow who gifted me with my first Atari 2600 system, the first video game system I ever owned. The system that would go on to really define a lot of my artistic and aesthetic life. Um, and here we were, full circle, sitting at this table again. And I wonder if this man even knew the influence he had on me. Probably not. Because, um, yeah, again, there's the, the family weird dynamic. No one's particularly close. Um, uh, would have been kind of awkward to try to go up and rap with this guy about <laughs> <laughs> the uh, influence he uh, exacted upon my life by uh, – making video games one of the uh, canvases through which uh, I see um, everything in the world. But um, anyway, that's the segue into what we're going to be talking about this week because it had been on my docket for a long time to kind of go through various generations of video game consoles that informed my life. Why not start with the first? And uh, running into Tony at my grandma's funeral seemed like a perfect catalyst for it. So now that we've set the stage, we are going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will talk all about my time with the Atari 2600 video game system, or in my case, the Sears Video Arcade, on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, on the IC Robots Radio Network. Super Mario is back. He's blasting where no one has ever been. He's taking on enemies no one else dares. This time, Mario pops up power wherever he goes. So he's bigger and badder than ever before. You've never seen creatures like these. You've never had an adventure like this. It's everything you've dreamed of and worlds more. It's Super Mario 2, only from Nintendo. Now you're playing with power. You are listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the Icy Robots Radio Network. And welcome back, everyone, to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the Icy Robots Network, episode 9. We are talking about my days with the Atari 2600 video game system, or in my case, the Sears Video Arcade. And when we left off, I was talking about how I initially ended up with this system after a visit to my Uncle Tony in Los Angeles. So now, I can't remember exactly what year this would have gone down. I would have had to have been somewhere between... Um, five and around nine years old because this happened when we were living in Atascadero, California before we had moved to uh, Santa Rosa. Um, And I also remember my brother was around. So I was probably six, seven, somewhere around there. And I know I I had had um, exposure to video games prior to this. And now this is kind of difficult because my chronology is really hazy looking back at all of um, my video game memories. And I really can't remember how they first came 
on the scene for me, how I really first got acquainted with video games. You know, I think my earliest memory of a video game was um, my mom had a best friend that she'd gone to college with. And her, uh, my mom's friend and my mom's friend's boyfriend lived together in Richmond, California, which is in the East Bay area. And now this, we're we're ratcheting back a few years here just uh, for some background information. Um, when I was really young, living with my parents in San Francisco, so uh, five years old or under, um, I remember we went to visit this couple in Richmond, which is not that far from San Francisco, uh, one night. We went over to their house for dinner. And I remember my parents had warned me before we went over there that the guy in the couple, um, his name was John, um, I was warned that John did not like children. <laughs> so I was a little apprehensive about going over to this creep's house because, like, yeah, I'm a kid. You don't like me. What a, you know, that's, I, I can't do anything about who I am, and you were a child. And I, I just want to say as an aside, the, the, the whole people who don't like kids thing kind of weirds me out because it's like, bro, you were a kid at one point. So in, everyone's a kid at one point. Deal with it. Um, I, I don't understand this, this dismissing of an entire stage of human development. But anyway – my man John did not like kids. And my man John, uh, in my memory, he was this kind of uptight guy with like long hair and a beard, but that was kind of par for the, that didn't, you know, we tend to associate long hair and a beard with like, oh, just mellowed out, man, being like a hippie, like the big Lebowski or something. But this was in the 70s when just everyone looked like that. So he was this kind of uptight jerk um, attorney guy who hated kids. But um, he kind of had this hippie look. And I remember we went to their apartment and, um, I had this thing from when I was a kid, um, and it kind of makes more sense looking back at it from my vantage point now. Um, But I remember um, when I was young, my parents, um, because I was their first child, would have other friends that hadn't had kids yet and were still kind of living the the single – or not single, but the couple with no kids lifestyle. Or they would have single friends who didn't have kids either. My dad – through his work, um, knew a lot of younger guys who were starting their careers and, you know, didn't have families yet. So they'd always live in an apartment by themselves. And I remember going over to these apartments or homes of people that were either single or married without children. And they always had much more impressive audio visual arrays than we had in our home. Uh, we always just had kind of a basic television, um, nothing exciting, no external speakers hooked up to it. We probably had some other kind of dumpy stereo nearby. But when you'd go to these single guys' houses or when you'd go to these couples without kids, they'd have much more kind of impressive, you know, like hi-fi audiovisual receivers and kind of newer fangled television sets. And I re- always remember um, just this feeling of gravity when you would go into a person without kids kind of living room and check out their audiovisual setup and just the, the the kind of big black knobs looking back at me from from these audiovisual units and uh, I always find it kind of impressive and uh, I, I remember um, when there used to be commercials on TV for early video game systems um, it would usually be a young guy playing a video game um, which looking back now it's always like a really primitive setup but like at the time it was it was portrayed to be kind of that this guy had like the hip latest uh, set up for audio visual for gaming. And, um, that's how I always felt when I went to these people without kids houses and I would see their, their deal. Um, so 
this guy, John, totally had this going on. He had like a fancy stereo, fancy TV, um, but he also had what I believe was an Atari 800. It was basically an Atari computer that you would hook up to a television set. And um, with this Atari computer, he had one video game. And that video game was Minor 2049er. And I believe uh, my dad had been over to their house and had played this game and been impressed by it previously and kind of told me about it. So I already went over there kind of interested in this Minor 2049er. But I also remember my parents were like, now remember, he doesn't like kids. So you can't ask him to play it. Um, if, if it just comes up casually, you might get a turn, but don't get your hopes up. But we show up and we're waiting for dinner. Um, I'm sure this guy was having his girlfriend cook the dinner because he's not the kind of guy that's going to help out or anything. As I said, he's kind of a aloof jerk. But uh, his um, girlfriend, who probably also didn't like kids, was cooking dinner. My mom was kind of talking to her. Me and my dad are sitting out in the living room with uh, John. And uh, John um, proceeds to bust out the game. And um, we're watching him play it for a while. And in retrospect, I'm looking back at this game right now as we speak. And it's a typical primitive early sort of platform game. Um, you know, you got the the sort of Mario uh, or actually Donkey Kong style ladders um, from platform to platform. There's also some elevators that the miner can uh, move up and down through. And you're, the miner is a portly fellow who's basically trying to avoid some weird squiggly creatures of some sort. But I was just so taken with this game on first glance and I had no idea what it was supposed to be about. I didn't get, I'm minor 2049er. I I guess it's supposed to be like a a gold miner in the future. Um, But uh, which interestingly, um, a lot of futuristic things from that era, we have now passed that time, but 2049 um, is still not upon us and is still a ways out actually. Um, But yeah, I just I was watching this this portly guy being controlled going through the elevators. The elevators fascinated me because they were kind of like these little like teleportation boxes and I just found myself completely immersed in this thing, completely drawn in by the the colors and the sounds. And I remember when John turned to me and asked if I wanted a turn. And I was just shocked because I remember um you know, the warnings my parents had given me and I was really on guard with this guy, but it was like, sure. And I proceeded to play that game for basically the rest of our visit there. I think I think John figured out it was a way to get the kid out of his hair. Um, but I was playing it, and I kept being concerned at any given time that he was going to take the controller back from me. And I remember my dad would kind of give me, like, meaningful, like, warning glances, like, you know, don't push it. Remember, this guy doesn't like kids. And I remember um, by the end of the, the visit, the only, the only dust-up old John and I had was when we were all eating dinner at the table together. I got, like, a little drop of food. Um, on a placemat, and he pointed to it, and um, I wiped it off with a napkin. So thanks, John, um, keeping me honest there. But anyway, um, so that, that was really what drew me into video games. And then alongside that home video game experience, um, there was, of course, um, the arcade boom of the 80s was happening, and we had an arcade in our town, Starcade, which um, I'll probably talk about more um, at greater length elsewhere. But um, interestingly, I, I really, as a kid, didn't I, – I really compartmentalized home video games and arcade games. And I often didn't realize that um, uh, what I was seeing on a home system like the Atari 2600, as I would soon see, um, a lot of the games um, were like bad ports of arcade games. I, I just – it's weird. Like I, they just seemed like complete, two completely different genres to me at the time, and they didn't really mix. And uh, 
I wanted to play home video games all the time, but I also wanted to go to arcades, and they, they were just two different, two different institutions. But anyway, getting back to my visit to Uncle Tony. We went down to visit Tony, and at the time, he was living in an apartment, if I remember correctly. I think he was single at that time, because he was not with my cousin Jennifer's mother anymore, but he had not married his future wife either. So he was living in kind of a bachelor apartment where he would probably have partial custody of his daughter, who I think was there on this visit. Um... But uh, so th- this was different than um, the, the MTV visit I had with him, I think, was later on because they were living in a full-on house at that point, and I think Anthony was married. But this time, Anthony was just just batching it, and he had one of these apartments with the, the slick, stern, um, grave-seeming audiovisual setup where you just had these, these silent modules just uh, stacked up waiting in front of you to unleash audio and visual delights. Um, but as part of his rig, he had... Um, an Atari 2600 or a Sears video arcade, as it were, the Sears version of the Atari 2600, which I'm just going to start calling the 2600 for the rest of this. I don't think I need to make that distinction anymore. You get the point. But, um, but yeah, the second we got to the house and the second I noticed the 2600, I was drawn to it like a magnet and he was like, Oh, you, you, you like this. All right. And he set it up for me and let me play it. And I spent most of our visit, which was probably a couple days down there, when we were at his place uh, playing Atari. And I remember kind of mid-visit, um, he was just sort of like, uh, you you want to take this thing home with you? And I was just blown away. Like, what are you talking about? I just, I figured, you know, these video game systems, they weren't something that I was ever possibly going to be able to own. But he was like, yeah, yeah, take it. I don't, I don't use it. I play golf. And um, yeah, I remember there were all these like kind of um, amidst the audiovisual equipment, there were all these... Uh, golf bags with golf clubs and gleaming, gleaming golf clubs against leather bags, which I don't play golf myself. I don't understand the appeal at all, but yeah, uh, Tony was big into golf. Uh, and so he had no time for the 2600, but I remember when he offered it to me, my mom getting kind of agitated and taking him aside and being like, well, that's illegal. And I didn't understand what they were talking about. And I still don't know the whole story, but piecing back kind of bits uh, that I remember overhearing and, and just kind of speculating what it was probably about is I think what happened was Tony didn't actually buy this Atari. Um, he had a P.O. box and it was shipped accidentally to his P.O. box. But rather than send it back or report it, he just kept it. And uh, so my mom was like, yo, that's not OK. Someone's going to track us down and find it. But he was like, yeah, whatever. So it, somehow puppy dog eyes, I was able to to convince my mom, oh, come on, let us keep this. So we got to take home the Atari 2600. And um, the thing that I don't understand is, and I, maybe these Sears units came with games, because this thing had like, it was, uh, it came on this this sort of tray. The, the video game unit sat on top of the stand, and under the stand was a carrying case for games. And this thing was already full of games when I got it from Tony. And a lot of them were kind of like generic um, cartridges without artwork or anything like that. Like I remember, for instance, um, the system came with the game Night Driver, which as I'm looking now was a bonafide Atari release that had the, the iconic Atari um, box art, which we'll talk about more. Uh, but my version of it didn't have that. It was just a cartridge that just said Night Driver on it with no no art, no nothing, just simple, generic stuff. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if these games came with the system and because it was a Sears deal, um, they came in kind of a more generic, um, no-frills uh, 
packaging. Someone that's more interested in history um, could probably figure that one out for me. But um, yeah, one way or another, this thing was fully stocked. So it's not like I came back home with it with one or two games. I came back home with it with like probably a good 25 games. And it was everything from the aforementioned Night Driver to um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark video game, which uh, played a big part in my Atari 2600 history, Um, Warlords, um, Pitfall, Combat, Missile Command, Asteroids, Defender, Berserk, Adventure, um, just so many of the fundamental, foundational, classic Atari 2600 games. They just came right with the system that I had just ended up with basically out of thin air. And I remember just feeling really overwhelmed when I got home from that trip because, wow, I don't know if you could hear that. It's a UPS or FedEx or something knocking louder than a SWAT team <laughs> just startled the heck out of me and interrupted that train of thought. Let me, let me, let me go check and see what was so urgent that just got left here. Here, check this out. Live, um, live uh, package retrieval here on the air on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vigo podcast. And oh, it's some cans of compressed air for cleaning <laughs> keyboards. Nothing exciting. Anyway, back to what we were talking about. Yeah, I got home with the Atari 2600 and I felt overwhelmed because all of my experiences with video games prior to that had either been um, that one that I remember at John's house with the Atari 800 and minor 2049er or um, arcade experiences. And the the common thread with both of those is that my uh, time with the games was always extremely limited. John's, we were only there for a couple hours and it wasn't my house. The arcade, you know, you're limited by the amount of quarters I could possibly jingle together at age five or six or whatever. And again, you couldn't just sit there playing all day. It wasn't the, 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 the great days we live in today, the brave new world where you have places like the Arcadia retrocade where you play a, pay a flat fee and go in there and hang out all day. This was, you know, back in the eighties, it was a, you played a paid a quarter a game or 50 cents a game. If it was dragon's lair. And that's another story. It's brought to tears once by the dragon's lair price point. But um, so here I, I was just at home and I was like, I can I can spend the rest of my life playing these games. Little did I know my mom would do her best to regulate my game playing time. But that's still a little bit different than being at someone else's house or being in an arcade. So I think one controversial, possibly controversial point that I need to bring up as I look back on my arc with the Atari 2600 system is that looking back at these games from my vantage point now, I'm not the biggest Atari 2600 era fan. I don't feel like these games aged very well. Um, I don't have any urge to ever sit down and play adventure again. I don't have any desire to spend some time with uh, Pitfall. I feel like as far as systems that aged well, console generations that aged well, that I would actually want to go back and play now, really um, the only one that stands out is I guess it would be the 16-bit generation, like the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. Uh, when I was dead broke, man, you couldn't picture this. Lunches, brunches, interviews by the pool. Considered a fool because I dropped out of high school. Stereotyped a young black misunderstood, but it's still all good. Sorry, I couldn't, couldn't help myself there. But anyway, no, seriously, those 16-bit systems, um, I feel like they were the perfect balance of um, 
the graphics were crude enough um, that they don't look stupid a few generations later, um, like the PlayStation 1 or even 2 graphics have started to, you know, w- they're trying to be really photorealistic at the time, but once you get like 10 years out, that just looks like a joke. Um, the uh, Super Nintendo Sega Genesis uh, graphics were stylized enough that even as time goes by, they still look good, but they were, the, the style had been, um, you know, those extra eight bits were enough to make it so that they could withstand uh, the test of time uh, in all their stylized uh sprite-based, uh, pixelated glory. I just, I think, you know, Atari 2600 games just don't look good to me. They, they look ugly. Um, but that's not to say that they weren't completely immersive and mind-blowing to me at the time. Uh, they're not to say that when I played Adventure as a child, I did not believe that that golden, uh, arrow symbol was a sword and that that big bird-looking squiggly thing coming after me was a dragon. Um, so I feel like it would be disingenuous for me to lionize 2600 games as something that I still hold as like a gold standard today, but at the same time, um, they surely deserve all of my respect and praise for being that first generation, that standard bearer, that, that, um, gateway into a lifetime of video gaming um, that I have dedicated myself to since then. And of course, no, you know, I totally respect anyone that does look back and still enjoy 2600 games. I get it. It just, for me, they, other than being a, a super important historical point, I can't still hang on to them as something that means much to me um, on their own face value today. But I did indeed play the heck out of them in their day. And it's just so funny to me looking back just how low my expectations were for a game, what little it took to draw me in and for me to just spend hours and hours playing a game over and over again. Um, I remember uh, with that first kind of set of games I had, I spent a ton of time with Berserk. Berserk, if you remember, was a game where you play a fellow who's inside of an electrified maze and there's robots uh, shooting at you as you go by and you can shoot at the robots too. But if you spend too much time messing around with the robots in the maze, eventually a big pink bouncing ball by the name of, I believe, Otto comes uh, careening uh, into the maze like Kool-Aid Man. And if he touches you, you die. So you're basically trying to get out of there before he shows up. I had a whole mythology um, in my mind uh, based around that game and just endless stories about who the guy was and what the ball that was coming after him was and why he was there. And this was a game, this shows how, how I just I didn't understand that there was any relationship between home console games and the arcade. I didn't even know that there was a Berserk arcade game. And I remember in early elementary school, a fellow on the playground trying to talk to me about the Berserk arcade game and that it's talked. I guess, uh, according to this guy, um, if you tried to leave the maze without killing all the robots, you'd hear, uh, chicken come back and fight like a robot or something along those lines. Maybe I have to ask Iceberg 13, um, over at the Toys R Us report about that, but I never witnessed the game in person myself and I just didn't believe him. I was like, no, you're confused. Uh, Berserk is an, is a, uh, Atari game. It's not an arcade game. And so same thing with Defender, which I played a lot of. And another game that I had huge stories going on in my mind because there was a whole gimmick in Defender that you're trying to rescue those little uh, shimmery uh, slivers that are supposed to be people 
Um, and you know, and if you if you don't rescue enough of them, or if you don't kill enough of the uh, enemy um, invading aliens, um, there's kind of a, like a nuclear cataclysm, and uh, the unsaved civilians turn into mutants. And that was always very fascinating to me. Um, I, I almost like to see that that transformation happen. Um, same thing I, I forgot to mention with Berserk. I would oftentimes spend time just running into the electrified walls on purpose because I liked the sound. <laughs> and the sensation of listening to that sound as the character fried against the walls. Um, some of the other classics go without much mention. I mean, of course, I played the heck out of combat. Who didn't? Um, that was a game where you, you were playing different tanks and planes shooting at each other. Uh, played a lot of Warlords with my brother. Um... We had the little paddle controller for that. You also see the paddle for that game, Night Driver, that I mentioned earlier. Night Driver, I would play Night Driver for hours, and I always thought that eventually I'd get somewhere. I, eventually, there'd be a place to turn off on the road, or there'd be a building to go into. I, I, I For whatever reason, I thought that that was the goal of the game. You need to you get to the next part, get to, like, the, the town or the city. I guess I was, like, you know... Uh, 20 years or however long too early for like Grand Theft Auto or whatever. But um, speaking of that, the game out of all those first games that really gave me a hint about what games were not really able to achieve yet in that Atari 2600 generation, but what they would be able to someday uh, achieve, excuse me, um, was that Raiders of the Lost Ark game that came uh, with my system. And this game... Was unlike any other Atari game that I had in that first wave, in that it was very unclear how you were supposed to play the game or what you were supposed to do. And I remember I had an instruction booklet for it, and it was basically like, eh, just try stuff and see what happens. You know, there's got to be a way to play this game, right? And um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark game was basically trying to be more of um, what's now kind of a contemporary style adventure game where you use different items to get past different obstacles. Um, but it was just a little too ambitious for what the Atari 2600 could really pull off. And that coupled with the lack of any kind of significant documentation or instructions made it a very frustrating game. Um, but interestingly, my dad actually beat the game. He figured out how to beat it. And, um, this uh, ties into kind of where my next wave of games came from, and that when we were living in Atascadero, my dad worked at the Atascadero State Hospital, which was a fairly grisly job. Atascadero State Hospital um, is a uh, state mental institution where some fairly gnarly uh, criminals go to spend time once they've been um, uh, deemed, I guess, you know, mentally unfit to do standard prison time. They're in the psychiatric institution instead. Um, but in the break room at uh, the state hospital, um, there was an Atari 2600. And my, get, my dad would play it on his break, and then he'd come home and, and uh, play ours sometimes too. And I think sometimes they either had a lot of the same games that we had or he would bring the games back and forth because I, I believe he made a lot of his progress um, on Raiders 
at work and not at home, if I recall correctly. But I just remember um, I had long since given up on Raiders. I couldn't even get past the first screen. But he'd be telling me, oh, no, 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 you, you know, after the first screen, you go to this other place. There's a second, you know, the, it starts off in like a marketplace, but there's also a black market you can go into. Oh, but you got to beware of the raving lunatic. That was a strange character that looked like kind of a slug. But I think he was supposed to be some some guy hanging out in the black market. And if you tried to pass him head on, you'd die. Um but you had to figure out some convoluted way to get around him from the back. Um, and then my dad also figured out that like uh, you had to – there were these mesas that you were trying to climb. But if you fell off of them, you died. But um, in the death screen, there was actually a way to parachute back over to the mesa and get inside a hole you could blow open. Uh, totally convoluted, bizarre stuff all presented in really horrible, chunky, pixelated graphics. And I don't know how he figured all of this stuff out. And while I've had differences with my parents over the year, I have to give some respect here that that my dad did in fact beat Atari twenty uh, beat Raiders of the Lost Ark on the Atari twenty six hundred. God only knows how he figured all that stuff out. There were no no tip lines, no hints, nothing like that back in the day. Just your own your own ingenuity and uh, gut instincts leading you along. Um, and one other point I want to make about uh, well, not about Raiders, but the Raiders reminds me of. Um, is that, like I said, I, I tried to read the uh, instruction manual for how to actually play the game, and it wasn't particularly helpful. But the manual was um, stuffed in with a bunch of other manuals in that um, compartment uh, underneath the actual game unit itself that came with my uh, Atari. Um, and I remember I'd like to just sit back and kind of leaf through the manuals, even for games where I didn't really need a manual, and to leaf through the catalog that came in there because – I loved that Atari 2600 catalog and box art. And if you're not familiar with the kind of iconic, uh, defining Atari 2600 box art style, do yourself a favor and just Google really quick right now Atari 2600 box art, and you can see what I'm talking about. And uh, I'm actually looking it up right now, and I always assumed there had to be one main individual behind this art because it's a very distinct look. And it looks like um, a man named Cliff Spawn was... um, the artist who was responsible for a lot of this work. Um, I think I remember Vic Sage talking about that on the last episode of the uh, Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast where he talked about Warlords. But um, it's funny because when I'm looking up uh, the the box art right now, I'm seeing it's kind of it's sad. There's like at least a couple people here who just don't get it because they're calling the uh, that it was uh, the art style was misleading or this other guy uh, is saying... Um, that the, the box art tried to compensate uh, for the simple games with elaborate paintings with incredibly loose interpretations of what the game was supposed to be about. And he, this art it comes from an article, 10 horrible paintings from Atari 2600 game box art. These are not horrible paintings. These are amazing paintings. The fact that they're even paintings is just like, to me, I understand that this one individual at geek.com thinks that the box art was misleading. And at least this, this writer does say wonderfully misleading, but to me, just that contrast between the, the horribly ugly games and then this kind of Baroque artwork that was just like over the top, you know, giving you a, a glimpse into this intricate world that you could visualize from these just very simple little beep boop, you know, boxes uh, flashing on the screen. I, I, I find that to be such a powerful thing and, and just so fitting. Like, the Atari 2600 box art is the only way you can present Atari 2600 games. It's the only thing that makes sense. But it took a genius to come up with that, because who would have thought, let's just make these really severe, just kind of grave-looking paintings to go along with these just kind of flashing uh, 
flashing pixel games, you know? So um, do yourself a favor, yeah, scroll through some of these. I remember, like, you know, just one box art image for a game, like the Defender box art. I came up with stories in my mind who the woman that's getting shot at there was, who the guy that's kind of disappearing was, who was piloting that ship. Um, with uh, Missile Command, for instance, I came up with a whole story about, you know, who the guy behind the, the command center uh, dashboard was and um, what military, military organization he was working for. Um, uh, breakout, I remember there's like a kind of an athlete guy um, playing some kind of wall ball game. And, and to me, that, that, that was part of some futuristic game that Breakout was representing. Um, but yeah, the box art just added a whole great dimension to Atari 2600. And I'm just looking at these right now and I really, um, I, I need to like print some of these out and hang them on the walls or something. This is some great stuff and it's easy to forget at this point. It's kind of slipping away. It's getting farther uh, away from us in history, but Atari box art was really kind of a pinnacle of, um, video game art. Really? Um, I don't mean the, the art of the video game itself, but you know, auxiliary art accompanying video games. I don't think that there has ever been as high a point um, and as strange a point as um, the case of Atari and Cliff Spawn. But back to what I was saying about my dad having um, access to an Atari at his work. Um, the funny thing with the Atari generation is that um, a few years later, um, which seems like a lifetime later, but it can't have been that much longer when uh, the original Nintendo Entertainment System came to prominence, and my brother and I ended up with one of those. Um, during that Nintendo era, each new game that we acquired seemed like a huge event. Um, on one hand, there was the fact that we were actually seeking out specific games. On the other hand, there was um, also the fact that you had to figure out a way to pay for these games or to, to trade for someone or to borrow one or whatever, rent one. Um, they just felt like they were kind of hard to just come by out of thin air where the 2600 was the exact opposite. Like, first of all, the fact that I just even started off owning one with a clutch of like 25 games or whatever. Um, but I rarely remember purchasing video games for the Atari. They would just kind of show up and, um, every kid that I knew had, had an Atari system and it would just feel like we'd be like, you know sitting on a couch at a friend's house and it's like, oh, I just found this game underneath me in the seat cushion. Oh, I've never seen that one before. Let's play it. You know, or you'd just be walking down the street and a, a game would just drop out, you know, from the tree in front of you and land on the sidewalk. Like, oh, let's go check this one out. You know, they were just everywhere. Um, and people, there was just a free flow. People hand them off to each other. Um, so I, I never, I never felt a want for games, but then I also never felt that I was looking for specific games. I just played whatever game came down the pike. And that's another thing. You know, um, nowadays there's a real big distinction between like kind of triple A game titles, um, you know, your major game developer, uh, big ticket, uh, releases versus just kind of crappy shovelware games. Um, but then in the day of the Atari, I mean, I had no way of knowing what game was what there weren't game magazines that I read there, there wasn't anything, you know, there was no internet. Um, so games were games and it was all the same to me. And like, you know, nowadays you read all this stuff about how like E.T. was the worst game ever made. And I loved E.T. because it was just like, it's another Atari game and, and it's about E.T. It doesn't get better than that. It's an Atari game. E.T. Massive win in my book. And uh, so anyway, um, in the midst of games just kind of coming out of nowhere, the first real big influx of new games into our household did come by way of my dad's work because I think he was one of the few people that actually played the Atari there. 
And I think at a certain point, other coworkers are like, yeah, just go ahead and take the games home. And like, again, God only knows where these games came from. I don't know if someone there was purchasing them or they were just like, you know, uh, coming out of the walls through osmosis. But anyway, uh, they had games at my dad's work that we didn't have at home and that he, there were two in particular he was really into. And those were the two that they told me, yeah, just take them home. One was a game called Egomania and one was a game called Frankenstein's monster. Now, Egomania was a game where you were a bear wearing a hat, a top hat. And there was a chicken, um, on a platform above you walking back and forth, dropping eggs. And you had to catch these eggs in your hat before they hit the ground. If you did it for long enough or if you caught enough eggs, you got a brief uh, window where you were able to fire the eggs back at the chicken and you could get a huge point bonus if you managed to hit the chicken, you defeather him or her. And uh, it, it was what you strove for in that game. It was what you lived for in Egomania. It was just, you know, hitting that chicken. Um, Frankenstein's monster was a game where you were an individual inside of Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory and you were basically trying to escape before the monster could get out from behind, um, this wall that was covering it. And I remember that game was really mind blowing at the time because they did this effect where if the monster got loose and you died, the monster would start walking toward the screen and basically would get bigger, seemingly bigger and bigger and bigger until the entire screen was just one big green, uh, huge green screen because it was supposed to be like his chest was right up in your face. And there hadn't really been an effect done like that at the time that I'd seen. So that game seemed like this really epic thing. But truth be told, who knows? I don't really know. I mean, it's not like those are two games I hear a lot about now. I don't even know what who published them, if they were like top tier Atari games or if there's just some like, you know, um, random thing tossed out by some developer somewhere as a lot of those games seem to be back then. Um, but yeah, there was just no rhyme or reason. You played what you played and whatever came down the pike was great. And, and so in a way, because again, it's, it's like, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I can't go back to feeling that way, but it was looking back. That was kind of liberating time you just, you played games. They were all great. They were all fun. There was none of this like meh, you know, gamer nerd, uh, trench coat wearing guy with a ponytail intoning about like, actually this game does not live up to blend You know, you just played freaking games. And that mentality continued even on the rare occasions that I do remember my brother and I purchasing 2,600 games. Uh, one of the main times I remember buying a game, we were at Toys R Us and we picked up for some really cheap price, <laughs> this kind of gimmick double cartridge. I can't remember the name of the company that put them out, but, uh, they put out these double cartridge games where it was like, you know, each side was a cartridge that you could put into uh, your system. And ours was two games. It was um, on one side was a game called Pike's Peak, I believe, where you're trying to climb a mountain. And the other, oh gosh, I cannot remember. Let, let me see if I can find this really quick. Ah, uh, okay. Ghost Manor was the other side where you played as either a boy or a girl who had been, they'd been hanging out together um, as a couple in a graveyard. And then I think some, uh, ghouls and zombies and skeletons and such start coming after you. Um, but yeah, and this, these were some just knockoff, like badly made, even by Atari standards, um, weird one-off company games. Um, but I don't know. We just saw it and like, oh, this is a double cartridge. Let's buy it. <laughs> so, you know, we thought it was the greatest thing ever. Um, and that was the thing too. Um, I, I do remember later on in the Nintendo era, having a lot deeper sessions when it came to playing games with other people, like just sitting there with a group of people playing games like Life Force or Contra um, and, you know, just really being on the edge of my seat and being invested in every moment of what we were doing. Um, I also played cooperatively or player versus player uh, 
a lot of Atari 2600 games too, but in that era when you played with someone else, it was almost just something that was going on in the background. It was just background noise that you expected to be there because everyone had an Atari and they were on all the time, but you didn't really care. You weren't really paying attention. It was just a game. You know, it hadn't become, the games hadn't become what they are now. They hadn't become the same just kind of immersive um, experiences that required all of your attention. Like nowadays when I'm playing a video game, you know, Friday night or whatever, I'll be trying to drink a beer and play like, you know, I'm playing uh, this game Yakuza Zero right now for my PlayStation uh, 4. And I literally cannot drink my pint of beer while I'm playing because I'm so <laughs> involved and invested in playing. I, and then like two hours later, the beer's just still sitting there. That, that was not a problem with Atari 2600. Not that I was drinking beer at the time, but, you know, kicking, uh, knocking back uh, Diet Pepsis and eating lemon drops. You know, that, that you could do that simultaneously while playing Spider-Man on the 2600. Um, I will bring up, though, one time, the one main time when I was severely disappointed by my Atari experience. And that colossal disappointment can be summed up in one word, and that word is Sword Quest. Actually, I guess that's two words, but they were mashed together in one word um, for the title of this abysmal franchise that um, Atari attempted. Now, Sword Quest, I must have caught wind of it by way of advertising in comic books. And I am looking here, and there was indeed a two-page spread. This had to have been what I saw. Um, that ran in comics back in the day. And now let's just see really quickly what um, year... Let's see. So Sword Quest, um, the first game, Earthworld, came out in 1982. So I would have been around six at the time. And that kind of helps me put some of this stuff into perspective. Because like I said before, a lot of these dates when it comes to the Atari era are kind of nebulous to me. But six years old, I would have been living in Atascadero, California, around about first grade. My brother would have been like a one-year-old. So that makes sense. That's kind of the prime Atari time for me. And now this game, a lot of my Atari games, like I said, you know, I kind of just accumulated and they were titles that probably had already been out for a while. They weren't necessarily brand new in the store being advertised. Sword Quest was a case where I do remember that it was something that it, it was brand new. I was seeing the ads. I wanted to get it when it came out. And um, let's look at this ad now here. Um, the two-page spread, it's kind of a multi-layered picture um, depicting various realms. And the idea with Sword Quest, um, well, let me just read you the ad here. So Atari introduces Sword Quest, a video game series so challenging, you could win up to $150,000 in prizes for solving it. Atari's new Sword Quest takes you on a journey through four separate worlds, actually four separate video game cartridges, in search of a jeweled sword, the sword of ultimate sorcery. But along the way, you could actually, uh, blah, blah, okay, so anyway, the point of this goes on forever, but yeah, it, it was, the idea was it was a franchise that was going to come out um, in four different games, and each game took place in a different world. There was Earth World, Fire World, Air World, Water World, um, <clears throat> So this ad, um, you know, depicts the, the different worlds and it depicts um, a male and female kind of barbarian characters and a sword with lots of jewels and a crown with jewels. And um, the idea with Sword Quest um, was, uh, let's go to the Wikipedia page here. So basically, Atari planned four interrelated Sword Quest games, one each based on earth, fire, water, and air. Um, the company intended that playing all four games would be necessary to win the final prize. Um, and so... The way that this game was working in real time was that by winning the games, um, you were uh, entering into these contests. And so with Earthworld, for instance, um, there was a contest where the winner would end up with a 
talisman of penultimate truth, <laughs> which was made of 18 carats solid gold with 12 diamonds and the birthstones of the 12 zodiac signs embedded in it. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, oh, this is pretty funny here because it's saying, um, along with that, you would win a small sword made of white gold attached to the front of the talisman. Um, at the time of the contest, the talisman was valued at $25,000. Um, the guy who won it melted down the talisman to pay taxes, but kept the baubles that came with it and the sword as keepsakes. Unfortunately, the sword was stolen. But, uh, so anyway, the point of this game was you were supposed to um, beat these games as they came out, each of the four games. And one person for each game would be able to win a contest. And then each of these contest winners would go for the final contest, which was this huge sword, jewel-encrusted sword. Um, the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery, as they called it, which was valued at $50,000 with a gold handle encrusted with jewels and a blade made of pure silver. So yeah, there'd be a winner from each of the games, and then those winners would go up against each other um, for the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery. So seeing this at six years old, I was just mind-blown. First of all, this idea that you'd be entering this epic contest, and of course I pictured myself being able to somehow win, even though, you know, the odds are probably astronomical, but it wasn't just that. It seemed like the games were going to be just epic. Like what were these games that led to these contests? And, um, the, uh, the plot was, uh, presented as that the game was following twins named Terra and Tor. Their parents were slain by King Tyrannus's guards, prompted by a prophecy by the King's wizard Conjuro that the twins would slay Tyrannus. The twins were then raised as commoners by thieves to avoid being slain by the King. And, um, they were going into these various worlds looking for the sword of ultimate sorcery. So, I mean, this is just sounding like freaking epic, right? So somehow I was able to insist that my parents buy me a copy of Earth World, and I put this game into the Atari. It was probably the most excited I had ever been to use my Atari, and the title screen was very promising with the word Sword Quest and kind of this uh, uh, cursive font, and there's a flashing, gleaming sword, and you press start, and then you proceed to play a game where you control a character who isn't even like medieval looking or barbarian looking in the slightest. He's wearing like green jeans and a blue shirt. And you just kind of walk through rooms with this really annoying sound effect that just like, as you go through each room, occasionally you have to avoid these kind of like rainbows that are rainbow waterfalls. And it's, Ultimately, what the point of the game was is you were supposed to take different items, put them in different rooms. Once you put the right combination of items, a clue would show up on the screen leading you to a page and panel of a comic book that came with the game. And on that page and panel, there would be another clue that would let you put together um, different words. And, and it, that's eventually what you entered um, to win the contest for each game. Um, you know, there, it, it was kind of like in Christmas Story with the be, be sure to drink your Ovaltine, you know, and it was about, about as effective and impressive in its final um, result. But yeah, you, you were supposed to find these words. And if you came up with the right uh, combination of words, then you were... Uh, eligible to win the contest and win either the talisman or the, I, the next game I think had a chalice. And so, yeah, the, after earth world fire world came out like a year or two later. And I, for some reason I still stuck with it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm just missing something with earth world. Maybe fire world's going to be great. And fire world was more of the same unadulterated garbage. Um, I think water world came out to a limited release. I don't remember, you know, I think I did somehow end up with a copy 
Maybe I'm tripping because if, if it was limited, it could have been like, uh, um, you know, a rare collector's thing. Let's see here. Um, no, Waterworld, it looks like it was indeed. No, it had a limited release, but I still feel like it somehow came down the pike. And it was, again, just to, just as horrific. And then Airworld was never actually released because someone felt the need to put it out of its misery, put this horrible franchise out of its misery. So, yeah, this was a case. And I, I cannot... If you didn't play Sword Quest, if you didn't play Earthworld or Fireworld, I can't stress enough. It was just the game was nothing. Like, the, the, there was just nothing there. It wasn't even like Raiders of the Lost Ark where it was a promising premise that couldn't quite be executed and was frustrating to play. It was a game about nothing and not even in a good way um, in the way that this podcast is a podcast about nothing if you want to think this podcast is good. <laughs> but maybe that's stretching it. Maybe this podcast is the Sword Quest of podcasts. But anyway, Sword Quest was a complete and utter failure and disappointment. I hated everything about it. I don't think I've hated anything in my entire career of video gaming since as much as I despised Sword Quest. And again, this was from a time in my life when I was pretty earnest and naive about video games. And I was pretty much down to like anything that you put in front of me. But the Sword Quest, just the contrast in Sword Quest between the presentation, what was being promised, and the actual game, it just couldn't couldn't bridge that gap. You know, no... no, no the. The sword of even more ultimate sorcery couldn't have couldn't have uh, pulled a rabbit out of the hat for this one, as it were. And so, looking back over all the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, holds kind of a strange place in my video game history. Um, it obviously holds an exalted place as far as being, you know, the the floodgate for opening at all. I mean, it was it was the beginning of home consoles. I mean, I know there were other home consoles that came out around the same time or that preceded it, you know, you had your Vextrex and your Odyssey or whatever, but yeah, I mean, barely anyone had those and they just, they didn't have the same penetration, the same cultural impact that the 2600 had and even superior systems like the Intellivision and the ColecoVision. I never knew anyone that had those. I never even played them in person. So in a lot of ways, the Atari is king. Um, but like I said, you know, I, the Atari is not something that I personally look back on as something that aged particularly well. Um, the, the other thing that was strange about the Atari is every console generation that's come since, maybe n not so much the, the first Nintendo because it's kind of similar to Atari in this way, but nowadays, you know, a console comes down the pike and it's a very uh, defined kind of, you know, four to six year cycle where you play games for that console and then you kind of move on. The Atari, and I'm, part of it was probably my age at the time because, you know, time has become a lot more telescoped since then, but it, the Atari just seemed like it was around forever. And it was just kind of this nebulous thing. And you never thought it was going to go away. Cause you didn't really think, Oh, well there's going to be a better version of this. Um, you know, in a few years, it, it was just the Atari. You played Atari. That, that, that's, that's just what it was. And along with that was the fact that, you know, these games for the Atari, none of them were so complicated that they would take more than, you know, maybe, maybe like 15, 20 minutes to beat uh, versus, you know, I mean, some of them just would go on forever, but like the ones that kind of had a finite narrative. Um, I remember uh, one game that stands out in my mind, particularly, um, which is kind of an unsung Atari game, but it, it was probably, God, it was one of my favorite Atari games. Uh, cartridges and i mean it, this is one that actually like i would maybe sit down and play for a minute now was um the game krull uh you know uh, based on the movie of the same name you know i've never actually seen that movie <laughs> but i was very taken with it when i was a kid and so the game was my my way of engaging with it that was my version of krull was that game but i felt like that game did a lot of kind of interesting things the way it started with the wedding scene um 
you know, moved on to, to riding your steed across the wastes or wherever they, they were and trying to pick up items to being stuck in the, the spider's web that you're trying to get out of and then fighting the beast at the end. It, it, it did a really good job, I think, of um, stylistically presenting those different uh, stages. A lot, of, a lot of Atari games didn't do as good a job as going from stage to stage and kind of mixing things up. And the graphics, while as ugly and simple as everything else in Atari, really um, did a good job there of kind of um, working with what they had to kind of present things in a stylized way that made you feel like you're really there in that crawl world. Um, but yeah, but the thing about that game crawl is, I mean, thinking back that that's like a 10 minute game, but I would sit there playing it for hours and I, I just, I don't know what it was. I mean, I guess I had no, no point of comparison at the time. Um, I didn't know the kind of immersive, like 200 hour plus games to, that would come in, in, in the decades later. But, um, but yeah, so Atari, um, very weighty, prominent place in the history of my imagination, um, a time that was nebulous and felt like it went on and would go on forever and games that were just incredibly simple, but that would draw you in and, and keep you occupied for hours on end. And again, I think I mentioned earlier, um, part of that was you could kind of just play these games without thinking about them and be like carrying on conversations and playing with your friends, doing other stuff while the game was just kind of ancillary in the background. But the era did come to an end. Um, Really, the death knell for me with the Atari was the advent of the Nintendo Entertainment System. And this is something I'm going to talk about um, on its own episode. But the first time I ever encountered a Nintendo Entertainment System in the wild was at a store called Software Etc. here in Santa Rosa that I think primarily, um, I think they were like an Amiga dealer and maybe like Apple stuff too. But for some reason, they had um, they were selling Nintendos and they had a Nintendo, uh, like a display model that you could play. And um, it was Super Mario Brothers. And um, I, I want to kind of save this because I want to talk about it more in its own episode. But the game, that was a, just literally, for lack of a better term, a game changer for me. The fact that you could fall to your seeming death at the bottom of the screen, as was the case in pretty much any Atari 2600 game, but you would continue falling into a new screen and the game went on. It was just, it was so multidimensional and epic. And I just wanted to sit there and play Super Mario Brothers for the rest of my life and never look back at the Atari 2600. But, um, of course my parents who were never super supportive of, um, our gaming, my brother and my gaming, um, desires, which is not entirely true. Cause like I said, my dad was kind of in on the 2600 thing, but that's kind of where he, he parted company after that. He didn't care. You know, he was happy with the 2600. So basically when we were pitching on our parents said, no, now we need a new video game system. They weren't really feeling that. And so it took quite a while to, um, make a Nintendo happen. So we were still playing Atari, with one eye kind of looking to the future and wanting that Nintendo entertainment system. But I remember one day my dad came home from work and my brother and I were probably sitting there irritatedly playing the Atari, wishing we had Nintendo. And my dad was like, Oh, playing some Atari, huh? And we're like, yeah. He's like, well, I've got a surprise for you. Presents, presents. And we're like, Oh snap. He got a Nintendo. And he proceeded to present us with an Atari 7,800. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so bad. Like, I, seriously, like, uh, it's one of those things that I kind of look back with shame for my childhood because, like, you should be stoked. You know, someone just did something nice for you. They just out of the blue bought you this new thing. And, I mean, I, I they, the 7800s probably weren't as much as Nintendo, but it's not like they were just – they were cheap. You know, I mean, should have been grateful, but we're just like, oh, thanks. And the 7800, you know, I tried to get into it. 
but it was really just a machine that played 2600 games and also played Exevious. <laughs> I don't think I ever ha- had any other games for the 7800. And like, I remember feeling really stymied because at the time I was like, this system, like, what am I supposed to do with it? And looking back, sometimes I'm like, maybe I just didn't know what time it was. And there are all these great games I didn't know about. But I look at the catalog of games and there just wasn't really that much. It wasn't a well-supported system. Um, but yeah, that the 7800 was kind of the last gasp for me. Um, I think our old uh, Uncle Tony's old Sears arcade was kind of not performing that well anymore by this point anyway. It was kind of faltering. And so we had a, it was kind of last gasp breath of life into our Atari catalog. Um, and yeah, I played, play, oh, Exevious. And I think there was a pole position game that, that came with it. And they, they were both kind of brighter and prettier looking than the than the games for the 2600 but still nothing compared to the wonderlands that beckoned from the perch of the nintendo entertainment system which we will talk about at a later date but for now folks let's wrap this up thank you for listening thank you for bearing with me in this long gap between episodes i am going to do my best to get on a regular schedule with this show i know i've said it before and i'll say it again but i will keep trying gambare i will do my best Um, But until next time, folks, again, thanks for being here. Thanks for supporting the IC Robots Radio Network. Thanks for letting me be sensational. Thanks for being sensational with me. Until next time, this is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega with the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. This has been a Joseph S. Mama production on the IC Robots Radio Network. Y'all heard?